This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of cervical radiculopathy from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Cervical radiculopathy is a clinical symptom caused by nerve root compression in the cervical spine. It's characterized by sensory or motor symptoms in the upper extremity. With respect to pathophysiology, cervical radiculopathy can be caused by degenerative cervical spondylosis and or disc herniation. With respect to degenerative cervical spondylosis, a disc osteophyte complex and loss of disc height, as well as chondroosseous spurs of the facet and uncovertebral joints can lead to cervical radiculopathy. With respect to disc herniations, they're usually posterolateral, between the posterior edge of the uncinate and the lateral edge of the posterior longitudinal ligament. As far as neural compression, nerve root irritation can be caused by direct compression and or irritation by chemical pain mediators, including IL-1, IL-6, substance P, bradykinin, TNF-alpha, and prostaglandins. Neural compression affects the nerve root below. For example, C6-C7 disease will affect the C7 nerve root. Now, let's quickly talk about some relevant nerve root anatomy. The key differences between the cervical and lumbar spine are pedicle nerve root mismatch, as well as the horizontal anatomy of the cervical nerve roots versus the vertical anatomy of the lumbar nerve roots. With respect to pedicle nerve root mismatch, the cervical spine's C6 nerve root travels above the C6 pedicle, which is a mismatch, while the lumbar spine L5 nerve root travels under the L5 pedicle, which is a match. The extra C8 nerve root without a C8 pedicle allows the transition. As far as the horizontal anatomy of the cervical nerve roots versus the vertical anatomy of the lumbar nerve roots, because of the vertical anatomy of the lumbar nerve root, a paracentral and foraminal disc will affect different nerve roots. Because of the horizontal anatomy of the cervical nerve root, a central and foraminal disc will affect the same nerve root. With respect to the presentation of cervical radiculopathy, symptoms can include occipital headache, which is common, trapezial or interscapular pain, neck pain, which may present with an insidious onset that is worse with vertebral motion, the origin may be discogenic or mechanical due to facet arthrosis, and pain may radiate to the shoulders. Other symptoms may include unilateral arm pain, in which patients may experience aching pain radiating down one of the arms. It's often global and non-dermatomal. Unilateral dermatomal numbness and tingling may also be a potential symptom. Numbness slash tingling in the thumb is the C6 dermatome. Numbness slash tingling in the middle finger is the C7 dermatome. Unilateral weakness is another potential symptom. Difficulty with overhead activities and difficulty with grip strength are both in the C7 distribution. With respect to the physical exam, common and testable exam findings include C4 radiculopathy, which can manifest as scapular winging, C5 radiculopathy, which can manifest as deltoid and biceps weakness, as well as a diminished biceps reflex. C6 radiculopathy can manifest as brachioradialis and wrist extension weakness, a diminished brachioradialis reflex, and or paresthesias in the thumb. C7 radiculopathy can manifest as triceps and wrist flexion weakness, diminished triceps reflex, and or paresthesias in the index, middle, and ring fingers. C8 radiculopathy can manifest as paresthesias in the little finger and or weakness of distal phalanx flexion of the middle and index finger, which can cause difficulty with fine motor function. With respect to provocative tests on physical exam, a positive spurling test is characterized by simultaneous extension, rotation to the affected side, lateral bend, and vertical compression, which reproduces symptoms in the ipsilateral arm. 
A shoulder abduction test is another provocative test where shoulder abduction relieves symptoms. Shoulder abduction or lifting the arm above the head often relieves symptoms. This is a valuable physical exam test to differentiate cervical pathology from other causes of shoulder-slash-arm pain. Always check for findings of myelopathy and large central disc herniations, things like weakness and clumsiness, hyperreflexia, Hoffman sign, sustained clonus, a positive Babinski test, gait instability, and or urinary retention. Be sure to listen to the Cervical Myelopathy podcast episode to review more high-yield concepts about cervical myelopathy. Moving on to imaging for cervical radiculopathy, recommended views include an AP, lateral, and oblique views of the cervical spine. Obtain flexion and extension views if there is suspicion for instability. General findings include degenerative changes of the oncovertebral and facet joints, osteophyte formation, disc space narrowing, and end plate sclerosis. The lateral radiograph is important to look for sagittal alignment and spinal canal diameter. An oblique radiograph is the best view to identify foraminal stenosis caused by osteophytes. Flexion and extension views are important to look for angular or translational instability. Look for compensatory subluxation above or below the spondylotic-slash-stiff segment. As far as sensitivity and specificity, changes often do not correlate with symptoms. 70% of patients by 70 years of age will have degenerative changes seen on plain x-rays. With respect to MRI, T2 axial imaging is the modality of choice and gives needed information on the status of the soft tissues. Findings can include disc degeneration and herniation, foraminal stenosis with nerve root compression, as well as loss of perineural fat, and central compression with CSF effacement. With respect to sensitivity and specificity of MRI, it has a high rate of false positives. 28% of patients greater than 40 will have findings of herniated nucleus pulposus or foraminal stenosis. As far as CT scans, they can give useful information on bony anatomy, including osteophyte formation that is compressing the neural elements. It's useful as a preoperative planning tool to plan instrumentation. CT is the study of choice to evaluate for postoperative pseudoarthrosis. CT myelography has largely been replaced by MRI. However, it's useful in patients who cannot have an MRI due to a pacemaker, etc. It's also useful in patients with prior surgery and hardware causing artifact on MRI. As far as the technique of CT myelography, intrathecal injection of contrast is given via a C1-C2 puncture and allowed to diffuse caudally. It can be given via lumbar puncture and allowed to diffuse proximally by putting the patient in Trendelenburg position. Discography is controversial and rarely indicated in cervical spondylosis. However, as far as the technique for discography, the approach is similar to that used with ACDF. Risks include esophageal puncture and disc infection. Some studies to keep in mind for cervical radiculopathy, nerve conduction studies, which have a high false negative rate, but may be useful to distinguish a peripheral from a central process, like ALS. Nerve conduction studies in cervical radiculopathy patients will show fibrillations and positive sharp waves in the affected distribution. Selective nerve root corticosteroid injections may help confirm the level of radiculopathy in patients with multiple level disease and when physical exam findings and EMG fail to localize the level. The differential for cervical radiculopathy includes carpal tunnel syndrome, cubital tunnel syndrome, and Parsonage-Turner syndrome. Treatment for cervical radiculopathy can be operative or non-operative. Non-operative management includes rest, medications, and rehabilitation. 75% of patients with radiculopathy improve with non-operative management. 
Improvement is via resorption of the soft discs and decreased inflammation around the irritated nerve roots. Immobilization for a short period of time, like less than one to two weeks, may help by decreasing inflammation and muscle spasm. Medications for non-operative management include NSAIDs slash COX-2 inhibitors, oral corticosteroids, GABA inhibitors like Neurontin, narcotics, and muscle relaxants. Rehabilitation can involve moist heat, cervical isometric exercises, and traction slash manipulation. However, avoid traction slash manipulation in myelotic patients. As far as return to play, this is indicated after resolution of symptoms and repeat MRI demonstrating no cord compression. Studies have shown return to play may be expedited with a brief course of oral methylprednisolone, otherwise known as a medrol dose pack. There is no increased risk of subsequent spinal cord injury after return to activity. Selective nerve root corticosteroid injections may be considered as a therapeutic or diagnostic option. With respect to outcomes, selective nerve root corticosteroid injections provide long-term relief in 40 to 70% of cases. There is an increased risk when compared to lumbar selective nerve root injections, however, with the following rare but possible complications, including dural puncture, meningitis, epidural abscess, and or nerve root injury. Operative options include anterior cervical discectomy infusion, posterior foraminotomy, and cervical total disc replacement. Anterior cervical discectomy infusion is indicated for persistent and disabling pain that has failed non-operative modalities, as well as progressive and significant neurologic deficits. With respect to outcomes, ACDF remains the gold standard in the surgical treatment of cervical radiculopathy. A single-level ACDF is not a contraindication for return to play for athletes. Posterior foraminotomy is ideal for a foraminal soft disc herniation causing single-level radiculopathy. A posterior foraminotomy may also be indicated in cases of osteophytic foraminal narrowing. With respect to outcomes of posterior foraminotomy, there is a 91% success rate, and this option reduces the risk of iatrogenic injury with anterior approaches. Cervical total disc replacement is controversial, but may be indicated for single-level disease with minimal arthrosis of the facets. As far as outcomes, studies show equivalence to ACDF. However, the effect on adjacent-level disease remains unclear. Some studies showed 3% per year for all approaches. Now, let's quickly go into the surgical techniques for these options in a bit more detail. We'll start with anterior cervical discectomy infusion, or ACDF. This uses a Smith-Robinson anterior approach. To quickly review this approach, you will make a transverse skin crease incision at the appropriate level then extend obliquely from the midline to the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. As far as the side, left or right, that's the surgeon's preference. With respect to superficial dissection, you will incise the fascia over the platysma, then split the platysma with the finger, then identify the anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid, then incise the fascia and retract the sternocleidomastoid laterally. Then, you'll identify and retract the strap muscles medially, that is the sternohyoid and sternothyroid. Next, you will identify the carotid pulse and retract the carotid sheath laterally. Then, cut through the pretracheal fascia and localize the superior and inferior thyroid arteries and tie off if necessary. Deep dissection will involve splitting the longus coli muscles and anterior longitudinal ligament. Be aware of the sympathetic chain that lies on the longus coli lateral to the vertebral body then subperiosteally dissect to expose the anterior surface of the vertebral body, then retract the longus coli muscles and anterior longitudinal ligament laterally, then identify the level with a needle in the disc space with a lateral x-ray. 
The technique for an ACDF includes decompression and fixation. With respect to decompression, placement of bone graft increases disc height and decompresses the neural foramen through indirect decompression. Corpectomy and strut graft may be required for multilevel spondylosis. As far as fixation, anterior plating functions to increase fusion rates and preserve the position of interbody cages or strut grafts. As far as cons of this option, complications of anterior surgery includes persistent swallowing problems. Moving on to posterior foraminotomy, the approach for this is obviously a posterior approach, and with respect to the technique, if the anterior disc herniation is to be removed, then the superior portion of the inferior pedicle should be removed. As far as advantages of posterior foraminotomy, it avoids the need for fusion and avoids problems associated with an anterior procedure. Disadvantages include that it is more difficult to remove the disc osteophyte complex and the disc height cannot be restored. Finally, a total disc replacement also uses a Smith-Robinson anterior approach. The pros of this option is that it avoids non-unions. Now, let's finish this review session by talking about surgical complications. The main ones to keep in mind include pseudoarthrosis, recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, hypoglossal nerve injury, vascular injury, dysphagia, Horner syndrome, and adjacent segment disease. Pseudoarthrosis has an incidence of 5 to 10% for single-level fusions and 30% for multi-level fusions. Risk factors include smoking, diabetes, and multi-level fusions. Treatment if the patient is asymptomatic is to observe. If the patient is symptomatic, treat these patients with either posterior cervical fusion or repeat anterior decompression and plating if the patient has symptoms of radiculopathy. However, improved fusion rates have been seen with posterior fusion in this setting. Recurrent laryngeal nerve injury occurs in 1% of patients. This is the most common nerve injury from an ACDF. The anatomic course of the nerve differs on the right and left side. Although theoretically the nerve is at greater risk of injury with a right-sided approach, there is no good evidence to support a greater incidence of nerve injury with a right-sided approach. As far as treatment of a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, the initial treatment is observation, and if not improved over six weeks, then an ENT consult to scope the patient and inject Teflon is the treatment. Hypoglossal nerve injury is a recognized complication after surgery in the upper cervical spine with an anterior approach. The tongue will deviate to the side of the injury. Vascular injury is rare, however, a vertebral artery injury can be fatal. Dysphagia has a higher risk at higher levels, like C3-C4. Horner's syndrome is characterized by ptosis, anhydrosis, meiosis, and ophthalmos, and loss of the ciliospinal reflex on the affected side of the face. It's caused by injury to the sympathetic chain, which sits on the lateral border of the longest coli muscle at C6. That's all for this review about cervical radiculopathy. Hopefully that was helpful. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.